This is Women in PR, a weekly podcast about inspiring women that have embraced PR and made it shine, changing it for the better every day. It's about mentors, founders, researchers, role models, leaders. I am Anna Adi. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcasts.com. Can history be revisited? Should it? Looking at PR, the history books are filled with white Western men helping corporations look good or do good. Aren't we missing something? Dr. Michaela O'Brien used to work in strategic communications and consultancy roles for nonprofits, including Amnesty International, the British Library, Business in the Community, Carers UK, and the Refugee Council before she joined academia. She is also the author of a book chapter called Activists as Pioneers in PR, Historical Frameworks and the Suffragette Movement. So she's joining us this week to talk about the suffragettes and the missing voices in PR history. So, Michaela, thank you so very much for having me today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Anna. It's my pleasure to join you. Now, today is a day when we dedicate uh, our time to research. Uh, we've, we've been speaking to, to women who work in public relations and share their journeys and, and stories and, and thoughts about the profession. But today, um, it's, it's dedicated, as I said, to research and, and to a bit of history. And you are one of those very, very visible researchers carrying out um, loads of studies into the history of public relations. So before you tell us about what sort of research you do, why history of all things and of public relations in particular? Okay, thanks, Anna. That's a, that's a very interesting question. I think the reason that I first became interested in looking at the history of public relations was while I was looking through some of the um, classic standard textbooks about PR, getting ready to teach an introductory module on public relations to undergraduate students, I noticed a couple of things about those classic textbook histories. One was that they seemed very male, and the other was that they seemed very corporate. So the kind of story that comes through um, those established iconic texts is about people like Edward Bernays and the work that he did for corporate clients like, for example, the American Tobacco Company. And in that story, as it's it's written up by, for example, Brim and Cutlip and, and others documenting PR history, the impression we get is of this very clever man, full of brilliance and genius, who came up with these imaginative ideas, the Torches of Freedom Parade, for example, in which women were, you know, used as actors in the stunt, they were targeted as audiences for his client's product, but it was a kind of male corporate endeavour to plan and implement PR campaigns. And I thought, that actually doesn't chime with my experience, that doesn't chime with my 
um, experience of working for 20 years inside public relations before I came into academia, in which, you know, many women, including myself, were active at the strategic level. We were working together. Um, and this kind of historical idea of corporate men putting their stamp on public relations, to be frank, annoyed me. But I thought this is an incomplete picture. So that, I think, was the starting point for my interest in, in looking at the history of, of public relations. So then um, tell us a little bit about your research. So I would, I would gather that this frustration has led to, to you looking for other voices. And by other, I mean other than men and other than corporate in, in public relations. What did you find? Yes, that's, that's exactly what I started to look for. So one of the first pieces of research that I did in this area was around um, a high-profile activist campaign run by a pressure group, an international pressure group, but in this case run by the, the UK branch of that, um, called Friends of the Earth. And this was an iconic campaign to prevent a road being built called the Newbury Bypass, which was going to allegedly, theoretically, speed up the traffic flow around a small market town in, in southwest England. But in doing so, it was going to go through and destroy a number of important battle sites, sites of, of important battles from the English Civil War, SSSIs, which are sites of special scientific interest. There are a number of historically and environmentally important areas that were going to be damaged by this bypass. And I wanted to look at that campaign in the run-up to its anniversary, partly in order to document activist and campaigner public relations as proactive and positive examples to look at. Very often, activist campaigns are othered in our literature, they are considered to be the problem that legitimate corporate PR has to address. Activist activity must be managed so the road can go ahead, that kind of approach. So I wanted to look at this as a case study and I was kind of asking myself, what sort of approaches were used by these activists? Were they different in any way to corporate approaches? Did the fact that there were mainstream charities working alongside grassroots activists make a difference? And also wanted to look at, are there lessons for current activists and campaigners from their activist history? And I think for, for me, one of the most interesting things I found from that research was that there was, um, even then in 1995, there was a lot of emphasis um, by the campaigners and activists themselves on retaining the legitimacy and the right to protest. And I think that's an ongoing battle that all campaigners and activists face, you know, continually. And at the moment, there is extra pressure um, in the UK with legislation around what charities can say and they're up to elections and so on. So I thought there were a number of important lessons from that history both for activists and campaigners in the current time, but also for public relations practitioners more generally to draw on, to have a, a, a more rounded appreciation of who has influenced the development of our discipline and how. 
Now, um, you mentioned who has influenced our our discipline, uh, and and one of of the uh, more recent. Uh, pieces of research that you've carried out, you looked into the suffragettes as well. Um, yes. And, and therefore the who. Mm. How, how did the suffragettes influence uh, communications in, in, in your view? I mean, you, you spoke about activists in, in this case. Uh, you also spoke about these other voices. Now, the suffragettes arguably are equally the other in the sense of, of gender as well as how they've yeah. positioned themselves. Yeah. So, so um, can you tell me more about how the suffragettes communicated and how could both corporations and other sorts of organizations learn from, from what they've done? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think with the, the case of the suffragettes, it's very well known and it's very well documented and it's often referred to that these were brave and imaginative women, that they took a very bold stand and that their struggle was instrumental in women gaining the vote. What I found was very interesting when I did my own research was looking at how strategic and how what we would now call professional their approach was to planning their communications activity. So I started the research into the suffragettes and looking through the archive that, that's held at the, the Museum of London with the sort of question in my mind about what kind of range of communicative activities did, did the suffragettes plan? And, you know, were they innovative? What were they doing? Were they looking at what um, other, um, you know, organisations, individuals were doing? Were they looking at what journalists wanted and and just sort of copying what was existing, or were they actually sort of setting setting a trend? And to do this, I used Baringhorst's work, which um, based on on drawing on uh, Pippa Norris, and Baringhorst sets out this idea of three stages um, of a media media work with a pre-modern, a modern and a post-modern. And given the dates that Baringhorst sets around this framework, I was expecting to find that the suffragettes' work would fit neatly into the pre-modern era. But what I found looking through the archive was um, evidence that the suffragettes were innovative, that they were pioneering, and also that they were strategic, that they were looking at how best to get media coverage, what was best going to get the attention of politicians, what was most likely to make their case, um, if you like, sort of unavoidable to ensure that, that their demands were dealt with. And to do this, they put together this whole package of communications activity that really does not look 100 years old. There are so many aspects to this that look to us very modern. So, for example, the branding. People talk about the slogan, deeds, not words, the slogan, votes for women. Um, a lot of people, I think, would be familiar with the purple, white and green uh, kind of colour swatch, the, the, the colours that, that were used by the suffragettes. What surprised me looking in the archive material and what I think is not so widely discussed, 
is quite how cleverly that branding was applied. So, for example, in the archives, there are tea sets, China tea sets with the colorway and the and the logo on them so that suffragettes having friends for tea could start a conversation around the, the China that, that they were holding. There were um, scarves and so on in the same way to kind of normalize and, and, and bring in conversations of, about the, um, the fight for the for votes for women. And there are also in the museum archive dozens of brooches and badges and sashes which have the logos, which have the, the colours on them. And one of the things that really struck me was how these range from very beautiful silver and enamel brooches that, that were very expensive through to little tin badges that you could buy for a penny. So the suffragettes were deliberately creating merchandise that was available to all their supporters from whatever class, whether from the working class or, or the, the middle or the upper classes, and they were also ensuring that this branding was visible. So they encouraged women to wear something with the suffragette branding on it whenever they came to an event. And this is strategic. This is more than just some brave women, um, you know, volunteering to go through the, the physical um, you know, impact of, of being imprisoned, being arrested. This is strategic planning and, and use of branding. So it was those sorts of findings from the, the archive that, that made me particularly excited. And it's it's interesting that you mentioned all these um, material uh, touch points in, in a sense um, and um, that they're still used nowadays. Mm-hmm. Now, if anybody uh, were to study public relations and do research, um, and, and maybe go back to one of the more established uh, mainstream models of analyzing history, I think they would uh, quite struggle to put that in one of the boxes provided. Yes, yes, I, 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 I agree. And in fact, in Baringhorst's model, you know, she talks, she doesn't in fact in, in include branding, but it certainly belongs, I think, to the, the period that she describes as the modern period, which is much more about sort of, you know, using the modern technologies and tools that are available to reach out to a mass audience. So, yes, I, I agree. And this is what I found looking at the suffragettes material was that some of their activities like the, you know, leafleting games sort of door to door and so on very much fitted in this, this traditional framework in, in this idea of what was being done in the pre-modern period. But there were definitely other activities which, as you say, either didn't fit inside the model, like, like the branding, or really um, looked ahead to the kind of the, the modern or, or even the, the postmodern era. So, for example, the kind of stunts and activities that the suffragettes organised, there's some evidence in the, the archive that these were planned, um, for example, there's um, some newspaper cuttings. There's a, in particular this front page from a um, an edition of the Daily Mirror, 
which shows suffragettes being arrested. And the story underneath makes it very clear that suffragettes had deliberately gone to this particular visit that the Prime Minister was doing, Lord George was doing, in order to disrupt it, in order to remind him about the importance of votes for women, but also because they knew that press photographers would be there and that they could change the story from one about Lloyd George and, and his childhood into a story that would be covered by the media about their their activities. And, and that kind of focus, I think, is something that really sort of bursts through the, the, the traditional ideas of what was acceptable at different at different times. Right, but then looking at the tactics and also the 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 outputs of mm. of their work, this is uh, uh, very very much in line with what you've mentioned many times before. Um, what we call strategy, strategy of communication, uh, very good analysis, uh, um, incredibly uh, useful media media coverage. In- mm in a way that supports and furthers discussions about uh, the issue. Yeah. Now, um, you looked at activists. These women, uh, at, at their time, were clearly stirring trouble. Um, but thanks to them, there's, there's a very different world that we live in. So let me take you back to history. Because mm-hmm. someone who studies public relations and maybe... Uh, is considering embracing or continuing their career in in a corporate environment would say, well, why would I care? What? How would the world be any better if we revisit the history of of public relations in a way that that are less, let's say, less corporate voices, less males in it, and uh, more of something else? Well, I think the answer to that is about equality, diversity, and the visibility of voices. And if we sort of accept that history was as it has previously been written, then we also accept with that a particular narrative that was promoted by the people who, you know, the organisations who had power, had access to, you know, to, to producing histories at that time. And we know that if we look back in, um, you know, in the UK and other countries too, if we look back 100 years or more, we find sexism, racism, all sorts of inequalities enshrined in institutions. I think it's naive in a way to assume that those institutional histories haven't affected the development of professions and disciplines. So I guess what I'm saying is that public relations today does not stand independent of its history. And if we look back to the history of public relations and we interrogate some of these accepted wisdoms, then we can learn more about the potential of our professional discipline, we can learn more about who is welcome in it and who isn't, and we can learn more about who owns and who has access to, uh, for example, the you know, or who can lay claim to the idea of being a professional communicator. This narrative... So if- mm. So, so if anybody came to you and, and said, okay... Um, 
you can write a book um, about history of public relations. Who else would you include in it? Ah, um, well, oh, that's that's very interesting. That 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 would be a lovely a lovely idea to to. So to there work. there you go. You and I have now a new project. Right. <laughs> and there are other um, women researching in PR who we would immediately need to to bring in. So Heather um, Yaxley, for example. Um, Heather Yaxley, who um, is you know studying and, and working as well at, at Bournemouth, has also done a lot of work in this area. And for example, she presented a paper um, a couple of years ago about Doris Fleischmann, who you know was in many ways um, the the woman behind Edward Bernays. So I think that. Looking at, if you like, an alternative history that would focus more on, you know, the contribution of women, of not-for-profits, people of colour, the individuals and organisations who were not part of the dominant discourse at the time when the history was being forged and recorded, I think that one of the most interesting parts of that project would be to look at uh, and to kind of bring together the network of people and researchers who are out there actively addressing the same questions that you and I are discussing today. So perhaps as part of this podcast, we can invite those researchers to get in touch. And as you say, we can we can look at a at a project about bringing together some of these different uh, you know different researchers that that are happening now. So Dora Fleischman would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who else would you would you put in the book? Ooh. Um, let me see. I think I'd want to plot that out carefully and come back to you. I know that's not a, a particularly useful answer for the in in the short term, but I think that it would be really valuable to work out the parameters of who has been excluded, who can be now invited in to reclaim a space, and how to identify um, those different actors. Because if we're looking at inclusion and diversity, then there's a really broad range there. So if we were looking at the role of women in PR, then that would be one particular group to to look at. The suffragettes, obviously, are the main, um, you know, the kind of the go-to group that people think of when you think about early proponents of PR. But I think there's a lot of useful research to be done along the lines of Heather Yaxley's research into Doris Fleischmann to look at the... um, the organisations that first started using PR and, and to ask, well, who else was involved in this? We know about Ivy Lee and his work around the American railroads, for example. Who else was active then? Um, and, of course, Tim Coombs has done a lot of work around this as well, looking at historically who were the other players in, in, in the US. So I think that, you know, the there's a whole range of kind of organisations, but also groups of individual actors that, that could be looked at there. For example, I think the the civil rights movement is often held up as an example alongside the suffragette movement as a group of brave, 
principled individuals who made a difference. Now, I wouldn't argue with that at all. Absolutely a group of brave, principled individuals who made a difference. But also strategy, organisational approaches behind that, that, again, if we looked at those in detail, I think we could agree would rival the kind of strategic approaches of, of corporates at, at the time. Right. And um, I, it's, uh, I'm so grateful you, you mentioned that because um, as, we, as we worked together and, and we looked at other cases, one of the things that, that came across was that issues weren't necessarily affecting just corporation at, or corporations at all, all times. And um, in, in, in the history that we've been looked at, we most of the time see how corporations in, in particular times in history have reacted to the challenge brought by what we would call today various stakeholder groups. Um, but with very little interest into how and why stakeholder groups engaged in a way or another or positioned themselves in a way or another on, on this particular issue. So going back to our book uh, idea, I, I, like, I quite like that. We're working on something new. How, how would you go about it? Because you, you talked about a lot of these corporate voices and, and so the cases are there. You talked about the need of maybe thinking differently about how we, we would approach them. How would you go about the relationship that we are still so used to seeing around that corporations and activists are basically part of two different groups? Yes. Uh, well, I think this is a really interesting question. This kind of gets to the heart, I think, and helps to answer your earlier question about why is it important to study history? Because... The whole idea of issues management, as it grew out of a kind of a, a, a wave of activism in the 70s, was designed really to help corporations defend their interests against activist pressure. So if we don't understand the history of, of a particular approach, in this case issues management, then we can't understand the fully the reason it's evolved the way it is, the reason it's framed and positioned the way it is, and the fact that looking to issues management frameworks is really of limited value for nonprofits and for people working in corporate PR, it kind of helps to entrench and um, and kind of and, and continue perpetuate the idea that activists are somebody to be held at arm's length. So I, I did some research um, last year, literature search, wrote a, a piece in uh, a chapter in a book for not-for-profit communicators talking about the, the, this particular issue, about issues management. And you can really trace how the history of the development of those frameworks has led to a position where it's assumed that an organisation using an issues management approach will be a corporate. So even the kind of risks that are often discussed are risks that corporates face, product failure, for example. Not something that a non-profit you know, generally has to, has to consider. Clearly, there are a lot of risks that can impact anyone, but the 
the kind of culture of assuming that an organisation will be a for-profit corporate organisation underpins even something that you think would be, uh, you know, general and applied to everybody, like like issues management. So I think that <laughs> that's a really interesting question that, that brings us back to the beginning of our conversation. Why is it important to look at the history of public relations with a, with a critical eye? And, you know, I, I think that issues management could very usefully be evolved to include more emphasis on dialogue, negotiation, and more emphasis on looking at the issue itself, which is at stake. Because the, um, you know, the way often that activists and campaigners are portrayed in the media there's often this focus on conflict. And it's very hard when the challenges for not-for-profit organisations or activists, campaigners, one of the challenges is to get past the journalist narrative about conflict and actually get the coverage to look at the issue that has brought them out onto the streets or into the lobby in the first place. And I thought recently the coverage around Extinction Rebellion was very interesting the media coverage in the UK uh, a month ago in, in June 2019, that you could almost sense the bewilderment of the journalists that they didn't have any real conflict to talk about. And when they stopped writing about the fact that there hadn't been any clashes between police and protesters, when they stopped being bemused that, about the sort of the good-natured um, you know, conversations that, that were happening, then they moved on to talk about the environmental issues, a climate emergency that has, um, you know, brought Extinction Rebellion together and that is informing their work. So that's unusual. And I think it's, you know, it's striking that it's unusual for activist campaigners to be able to get their message clearly through in the media without having to wade through this idea of, of the other, this idea of well, what are you doing that threatens corporates? How are you disrupting the the free market norm? So I feel that, you know, looking at issues management's approaches to say, let's put aside this corporatist approach and just think about the climate emergency for a while. Or looking at the issues management approach and thinking, how does this differ for non-for-profits? These are all, you know, interesting and productive ways to to critique the way that public relations is practiced. So we've got a project on our hands um, where we will have to identify the other voices mm-hmm. and that will definitely require us to, to see first who's in there. Mm-hmm. We also have another project on our hands, as you say, to trace back the examples that maybe we have, but then start looking at them from different perspectives. And with that, history becomes extremely, extremely valuable. Yes, I agree. Well, it sounds exciting. We've got, indeed, we've got a plan. Thank you very, very much for your time. It seems like we've got work to do. Thanks very much indeed, Anna. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. So there you have it. Michaela and I have just found a new topic for research, looking at diversity in PR beyond women. 
oh, we've got work to do. Next week, we'll be traveling all the way to Russia to meet with Irina Gushkina, who is the communications director at Kentucky Fried Chicken in Russia, the CIS countries, and Central and Eastern Europe. So we'll be talking about PR in Russia, about perceptions of the profession and its future there. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcast.com. To learn more about the show and my guests, do check out the show notes. And if you liked it, by all means, share it. If you have comments and suggestions, find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. My biggest thanks go to Migo Feke and Regina Kana, my team at professionalpodcast.com. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be here now. I am Anna Adi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>